for over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. Hey, this is Dre, and welcome to Potsy of the People. On this episode, we have Dr. Henry Louis Gates, Harvard professor and incredible host of Finding Your Roots, which is going into its fourth season. We also have Sean Sherman, the incredible chef, who's going to talk to us about indigenous food. And then we have the news with me, Brittany, Clinton, Sam, as always. And before we go into this episode, I'm reminded of something I used to tweet often. And it is, if your love requires me to hide parts of who I am, then that's not love. Love is never a request for silence. In this episode, we talk about identity. It's a lot of conversations about identity. And that's important because one of the key aspects of this identity work is that people should be able to show up in the fullness of who they are. And that we have conversations about how we got here, what identity means, and how we get to a place that is equitable and just for everybody. Some of that is about accounting for the past, and some of that is about having a bold vision for what the future looks like. So remember that love is never a request for silence. Let's jump into this one. Let's go. And now, the news with me, Brittany Packnett, former member of the Ferguson Commission and the President's Task Force in 21st Century Policing, Sam Siangwe, our resident data scientist, and Clint Smith, I, 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 Clint Smith III, our resident academic. It's the news. Hey, everyone. This is Brittany Packnett at Ms. Packetti on all social media. And this is Samuel Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III on Twitter. Clint, you worked really hard not to do I, I, I. <laughs> I had to clench my teeth. Uh, I love it. Uh, this is DeRay uh, at DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. So I felt like I was having heart palpitations when I saw the news that Colin Kaepernick said he would stand if hired by a team. And then... Uh, there was a correction that came out saying that the reporter who broke that news via the AP actually did not speak to Colin in person. Uh, and so that was just that was a real emotional roller coaster for a couple of hours. Yeah, it was a kind of wild 30 minutes because people were, you know, folks got online and were just like, I knew he wasn't about that life. I knew that he wasn't. An act. This is what happens when you take a football player and make him an activist. This is, you know, people were and this is how fake news you know, spread so quickly. Um, and, you know, even, you know, as we're talking about this a day later, it's, uh, I'm sure that there are many, many people who didn't see the AP's correction um, that are still thinking that Colin said something that he he has come out and said through other channels and mediums that he he didn't say. Um, but, but it is, as you said, Britt, it's kind of kind of hard to think that this there wasn't something kind of more nefarious behind this um to sort of throw everything into into chaos so i i don't i don't doubt anything at this point so i still don't understand how this information even got reported in the first place given what we know now that none of it was true that colin and his team uh didn't say this to the reporter uh that that this type of negotiation or deal was in the works uh, and so, you know, how did we even get to this place where you saw multiple 
media outlets putting this information out there in a way that did not make Colin look good, forcing his team to then respond uh, and, and share the truth about what actually happened, that, that these articles were fake. And I also wonder around accountability. So you know, when we understand what really happened, then we can think about what kind of consequences need to happen so that this doesn't happen again. I think the thing that I'm struck by is actually the correction itself. So I'm going to read the the correction. It says, correction, CBS reporter clarifies on saying Kaepernick would stand for Anthem, says they didn't discuss issue. And it's like, OK, well, how do we go from Colin said he's going to stand if he's hired to like, we didn't even talk about it at all. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. That's a dramatic turnaround. And like you, like you said, Clint and Brittany and Sam, it just feels intentional. And I'm happy that like it got cleared up, but I'm hopeful that, uh, that it gets even more clear. And these NFL players have been on it with their public statements. Like I look at these interviews and people are like on it. Well, I think it's important that we, you know, I just want to say that we continue to stand with you, Colin and, um, and everyone who's continued to take a knee. Um, and we especially stand with the original purpose behind behind your protest. You know, I'll just close by shouting out Jamel Hill, the ESPN anchor who was suspended for two weeks from ESPN for some tweets that she gave. You know, she's been a truth teller highlighting white supremacy's dangerous undertones and overtones and impact. And also just being honest about what's happening in the world. It is a travesty that she was suspended and we stand with you, Jamel. So this week marks 525 years since Christopher Columbus uh, first set foot in America's And today we are recording this on Monday. This will be released on Tuesday. But today is uh, the federal holiday of Columbus Day. Uh, But as many of us know, the legacy of Columbus is something that has been complicated over the last several years. Um, And you've had many, many cities and universities and states uh, pushing to have us think differently about uh, Columbus the man and, and what we think about having a day that celebrates someone with uh, a legacy that is uh, not sort of singularly uh, positive in the way that we are often taught in our in our uh, American history classes in elementary school. So, you know, throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, politicians have hailed Columbus as somebody who brought culture and civilization to America's. And even today, Trump put out a statement and he said, quote, the permanent arrival of Europeans to the Americas was a transformative event that undeniably and fundamentally changed the course of human history and set the stage for the development of our great nation, end quote. So for a little historical context, the holiday officially began in 1937 following a huge um, influx of immigrants from from Italy, uh, and the federal government proclaimed that Columbus Day would be a national holiday. Um, but now, obviously, again, we're that legacy is being complicated and we don't see him just as this sort of skilled and courageous explorer who discovered the Americas, but someone who uh, was incredibly arrogant, who had uh, terrible administrative capacity and a sort of questionable morals. And we know that Columbus and the crews that he brought over, uh, the implications of them coming over resulted in the wholesale transfer of wealth, land and resources from Native Americans to Europeans, that they enslaved indigenous folks, and that the European diseases that they brought over with them decimated Native communities by upwards of 90%. And so because we're starting to think differently about Columbus and his legacy, uh, since 1992, different cities across the country have been sort of stepping back their commemorations of Columbus. And and even in July 2015, Pope Francis, um, you know, Columbus is a a known and noted uh, member of the Catholic Church. Uh, Pope Francis apologized on behalf of the Catholic Church, saying, quote, 
for crimes committed against the native peoples during the so-called conquest of the Americas. Um, and so, you know, obviously there is a long and complicated legacy with Columbus as there are with many of the people who are associated with the founding of the Americas and the United States. Um, and, and it's interesting to think about how we can conceive of his legacy differently uh, and do more to acknowledge the people who were actually here before him and who actually, um, whose legacies have been sort of uh, erased wholly from, from the narrative of the United States and, uh, I'm, I'm excited to see that more and more cities are, are taking this up. It's important that cities are pushing back against the mythology of Columbus and Columbus Day, because you know what we know to be true is that not only did Columbus not discover America, right? That America clearly had a thriving uh, population and populations, many different peoples and tribes already lived here uh, that were decimated upon the arrival. Uh, of Columbus uh, and others from the West. But we also know that even the story about what happened when Columbus got here is untrue. So, you know, he wasn't even the first Western European to get here. Leif Erikson came from uh, Western Europe and arrived in uh, like 400 years before Columbus did. We know that when he did arrive, that he committed heinous crimes. Uh, you know, Columbus cut off the hands of Native peoples and in ex if they didn't bring him as much gold as he wanted to, you know, he was a, a despicable man. And so I think, you know, it's important that cities are challenging the mythology of him and doing that through sort of this opportunity of critiquing and changing the holiday. I, I hope that more people will realize this and, and not only sort of deconstruct who Columbus was, but begin to learn more about the indigenous peoples who were here before Columbus and continue to be here uh, and celebrate that uh, through Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah, um, just to put it in a bit of context, there are four states, three universities and 55 cities who officially celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day on today. Um, I think it's critically important that we acknowledge this history. Obviously, if we don't learn our history accurately, we're doomed to repeat it. Um, it's even more important, though, that for Native peoples in this country that we actually fulfill our treaty duties, which, quite frankly, are the very bare minimum of what we should be doing. Um, and we and, you know, the federal government is falling short of that every single day and everything from education to health care. Um, I often see, especially on Twitter, um, but I often see people essentially say, you know, that this is what happens when you lose the battle. Um, and this kind of you lost argument is built on the premise that a subjugation of other human beings is at all okay, which is deeply troublesome. Um, that's certainly beneath us. It's beneath our purported aspirations as a nation. Um, and if you... Uh, when I take some time this week to learn more about the history of indigenous peoples in this country, which I think is really important. Um, there's a great book called The Barbarous Years, um, which actually uh, properly displays and and walks through the history of America's early years and the kind of genocide that um that indigenous people went through. There's also a website that I often refer to because I'm really fortunate to work with a number of native people and American Indians here um, called manataka.org. It's M-A-N-A-T-A-K-A. -A -A. And what it has is American Indian history as told by American Indians. And I'm, I'm reading the title right now in case people are wondering about the nomenclature. It is often, um, 
what folks are choosing in self-determining to be called. Um, but there are multiple tribes and nations that have uh, histories that were previously oral that have been recorded on this website. And so as we think about people speaking for themselves, that is another really great resource. One of the things that's happening in Canada with the indigenous population is in some ways a form of reparations. In between the 1960s and 19. 19- 80s, Canadian social workers were forcibly separating Indigenous children from their families and putting them up for adoption by non-Native families in Canada and around the world. And the government just reached a settlement with the Indigenous populations. It'll affect as many as 30,000 people, and they're going to pay around $750 million in the settlement. So we've seen countries make amends for the terror that they inflicted on communities, uh, both a long time ago and even more recently. And I just want to make a quick note. I know that we've we've all been discussing um, and using the term like native communities and native uh, indigenous peoples and uh, things of that nature. But it's important just as a reminder that like Native Americans are not a homogenous group of people, that there are like many tribes and many communities with uh, many diverse cultural idiosyncrasies. And, and while we are using the term uh, or a different array of terms in order to to bring attention to a sort of larger demographic of people, it's always important to keep in mind that uh, there are many tribes within this larger demographic um, that have their own unique cultures, their own unique histories. uh, And that's just something important to keep in mind as we have these increased conversations about Indigenous peoples and and Native Americans, that there are uh, many folks who belong to those groups. So I've got a story to tell you all um, about the land of milk and cheese, as it were, the dairy state of Wisconsin. Um, Lots of great things happen and have come out of Wisconsin, but I'm really disheartened and dismayed by um, this latest information that I've been gathering. So Wisconsin is a state that is gerrymandered so badly that it should have one of the few blue state houses in the country, but instead it is nearly two thirds red. Um, this state is gerrymandered so badly that they elected one of the most conservative, most anti-labor governors in the country in the form of Scott Walker. Uh, Governor Walker selected all but two of the 18 members of the Board of Regents for the University of Wisconsin system. Um, it's one of it's a, it's a major college system in the country. It's got 182,000 students, 26 campuses, 13 four-year colleges, and 13 two-year extension campuses. Um, and recently, The Root reported on a change that the Board of Regents has made, um, saying that the University of Wisconsin recently approved a policy that would suspend or expel students who disrupt campus speeches and presentations because they are infringing on others' free speech and ironically and dangerous threat to the right to protest everywhere. Um, And so this came to my attention, but it is a part of a broader case against the gerrymandering that is happening in the state um, that actually the Supreme Court of the United States is taking up Gill versus Whitford because the gerrymandering has been so extreme that it's been challenged now at every level. But the new policy essentially reads that if you disrupt a speech or a presentation two times, you'll be suspended. Three times, you'll be expelled. Uh, I know, Clint, you've referenced it before, and we've discussed the letter from a Birmingham jail where Dr. King talks about the necessity of protest, the necessity of creating tensions such that power structures actually respond uh, to the people. 
So I continue to be confused as to why people think protest is supposed to be convenient or polite. I'm pretty sure the so-called founding fathers of this country were not polite to the British. That's genuinely not how protest works. Um, And college campuses are supposed to be a safe space. But this is incredibly worrisome. It's really it's an attack on education. It's obviously an attack on free speech, despite it being called uh, preservation of free speech. And I'm really afraid um, about what this will mean for other campuses in the future. This idea of of like three strikes and you're out is a real uh, unsettling parallel to the sort of three strikes uh, laws that have been in place for many years in our criminal justice system. And and I don't think that that's an accident. Um, Like it it is meant to criminalize behavior that people see as a, a threat. Like you cannot disentangle Charles Murray saying that black people are genetically and inherently inferior from no, from the sort of subsequent subjugation and second-class citizenship and notions of cultural pathology that are projected on to and imposed upon black communities. Clint, as you mentioned, it's important to ground our understanding of free speech and the exchange of ideas uh, in the realities in the existing structure that we uh, operate within, which is in many cases structured by white supremacy uh, and a culture uh, that can weaponize certain ideas and certain beliefs in ways that are incredibly harmful uh, towards communities of color. We saw that you know, going back in our history with the idea of black inferiority and white superiority and how that was weaponized to justify things like slavery and Jim Crow. Uh, But we also see how particular political uh, issues related to speech uh, are being interpreted through this lens of of white supremacy today. So, for example, we see, you know, at the University of Wisconsin that the university has adopted a policy uh, to essentially punish and criminalize uh, students who want to protest, who want to express uh, their belief and their ideas in uh, addressing sincere issues of systemic injustice. And you're also seeing other institutions that are also focusing on uh, criminalizing, punishing protesters like state legislatures across the country that are passing laws to increase criminal penalties on the act of protest, uh, even some laws that exempt uh motorists from hitting protesters, from a liability for hitting protesters. Now, that's happening on the one side. On the other side, so much of the national conversation has ignored that and instead focused on this issue of allowing Nazi speakers to come to campus and recruit other Nazis and share hateful ideas. And so you look at this and you just have to ask the question, why is it that so many people, not only conservatives, but many liberals as well, are so outraged and demanding that Nazis be allowed to speak on campus and that that is protecting free speech, but do not at all seem to be paying attention to or uh, outraged about the fact that students of color are being systemically targeted by their universities, by state legislatures, for speaking out about racism and police brutality uh, and systemic injustice. I do think one of the things that's fascinating about the University of Wisconsin is that it's actually the free speech policy which restricts free speech. Like that is just a, 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 a legit, like a, a mental leap that I think is actually pretty profound. And the details of it is that if you have been found to have engaged twice in 
violence or other disorderly conduct that disrupts others' free speech will be suspended. And if you disrupt others' free expression three times, you get expelled. This is literally just a tool to silence and put fear into people from marginalized communities who might uh, want to protest against uh, hate speech on campus and things like that. I also think it's interesting, this this free speech conversation never recognizes protest as free speech, that like free speech is always like the most offensive thing that could possibly ever be, that like people should be able to stand at podiums and say. And the reality is, is that the protesters are engaging in free speech too. And it's interesting to see, especially in an academic setting, like an intellectual setting, for people to rationalize this idea that you just have to be subjected to anything people say. This idea that like free speech truly means that like you sit in, that you actually don't have speech in the face of hate speech. And that is not either the intent of free speech or the purpose. So I'm fascinated by that. So my news is the good news of the week. So this is about the Latino high school dropout rate. It has hit, hit a new low. And it's been accompanied by record high college enrollment. So the Hispanic dropout rate fell six percentage points uh, to 10% in 2016 from 16% in 2011 among Latino students aged 18 to 24. And the drop is significant because Latino students are an increasingly growing set of the population of students. So uh, Hispanic enrollment in kindergarten through college increased by 80% from 1999 to 2016, from 9.9 million to 17.9 million. So it's great to see the dropout rate uh, decreasing and it's great to see it accompanied by college enrollment. We know that going to college is not the only marker of success that that people entering into jobs or careers is also really important. Trades is important, but these are uh, markers and indicators that we can use to have a conversation about uh, what progress might look like. And, you know, m- most of us on, on the news are, have been teachers at some point. So we know that, you know, graduation rates are, are only one way to think about success because Lord knows I know a lot of people graduated without basic skills. So we need to have a conversation about skills and how people get it. I, I always think about the reparations as potentially uh, being most applicable to education. And I have a host of ideas about how we could do that at scale and what that would look like. But this was a bright spot in an otherwise sort of tough uh, news year, <laughs> year, not even week, year. I'm always here for the good news. Lord knows we need it. I mean, especially especially when it's good news that we'll keep on giving, right? I mean, educational opportunity is the gift that keeps on giving. So I'm very glad to hear this. Um, and really, obviously, it makes me worried even more about the way in which these opportunities are being negotiated away um, in the conversation about DACA, Dreamers, and this wall. But... Um, this is this is certainly hopeful, and I'm I'm thankful to hear that this is happening, and I hope that it continues, and isn't threatened by what folks are doing in Washington. So one of the things that I'm interested in learning more about when we say that graduation rates are going up, and it, really across the board, we've seen graduation rates rise uh, over the past several years. What I haven't seen is interpreting that in a context where the value of a high school diploma is going down. As more jobs require, you know, a high skill set, they require a college degree or higher. Uh, the value of that of that high school diploma is no longer 
Uh, it doesn't translate into you know middle class wages as it did you know many many years ago. And so the question is, you know, if graduation rates are rising, are they rising at a pace and translating into degrees at a pace that is actually outpacing the decline in the in the actual value of having that degree? And so, you know, I, I don't know whether it is or isn't, but it, it would be something that I'd love to learn more about. And I think we should think about uh, when we think about, you know, these actual the actual rate of graduation going up and what that means today. Yeah, and I think that's a great point, Sam. And, and I would say that it's similarly important to consider the way that that uh, phenomena is, can be compounded by subsequent discrimination in the workplace, despite the degrees that they have. And so so it's important to to both recognize how important it is that less uh, Latino folks and less black folks are dropping out. Um, but also important to, to consider the, the like subsequent implications of uh, what it means to have these folks out in the workplace and how they're being treated um, and given opportunities or, or not given opportunities by, by different employers. So my piece of news is a ballot initiative in Florida. And so some of you might've heard, if you listened to one of our earlier episodes uh, I spoke a little bit about this, and so I'm going to give a little update. So there is a ballot initiative that the Florida Rights Restoration Coalition is working to gather 766,000 signatures for in the state of Florida that would eliminate the felony disenfranchisement law that's currently on the books there and enfranchise 1.6 million voters. So just to give you a sense of how huge that is, you know, if we talk about voter suppression law, voter ID laws, there were six states that adopted voter ID laws, uh, new voter ID laws in advance of the 2016 election. This one law in Florida, if that ballot initiative passes, would enfranchise four times more voters than the total number of voters, according to the best research, that were disenfranchised or suppressed through those six states voter ID laws. So it's huge. It is the hugest opportunity, I would argue, to enfranchise and address uh, and improve and expand voting rights, particularly for black Americans who in the state of Florida, uh, 25, almost 25 percent of black Americans and, uh, or black Floridians have been denied their right to vote, prohibited from voting because of this law, including uh, about 40 percent of black men living in Florida. Uh, prohibited by law from voting because of this one felony disenfranchisement law. And just to give you a sense of, you know, the history of this, you know, we we have to look at, you know, how these laws got on the books. What's the context for it? What was the intent? And in Florida, this law was passed. It was It was adopted as part of the state's 1868 constitution. So this was the constitution that they adopted after emancipation. Uh, and it its explicit intent this this law, as well as a range of other laws that were passed at the same time, which were uh, Jim Crow laws, bl- black codes, uh, as were passed in other southern states, with an intentional uh, desire to suppress and keep out the power of uh, newly enfranchised black voters and black populations. And so there's actually a transcript uh, from when they passed this law in 1868, where you have white legislators saying intentionally that they're that passing this law is going to prevent Florida uh, from having any black influence. And that's not the language they use. They use the N-word in it, but I'm not going to repeat it here. Uh, just know that it's pretty clear that the intent of this law was, was racist. Uh, and that is the Jim Crow law that is still on the books today, preventing one in four black, black Floridians uh, from being able to vote. So this is our chance, if we can 
support that effort uh, to get, they need another about 500,000 signatures. So I just talked with uh, some of the organizers there. And so they're saying they need another 500,000 signatures from registered Florida voters in order to put this on the ballot for 2018. If we can help do that, so you know, go to Florida Rights Restoration Coalition, uh, floridarc.com. Uh, you can sign the petition there. You have to print it out, sign it, mail it in, refer all your friends who live in Florida that you know. Uh, if we can make this happen, this will be the biggest thing to happen uh, for voting rights in a very long time, and it will dramatically impact uh, future elections, uh, including the 2020 presidential election. The only thing I'll add is I didn't know how wild the voter suppression was in Florida. And like not only the stats that you just said, uh, Sam, but I didn't know that Florida became the toughest state for felons to regain their voting rights in 2011, thanks to good old Governor Rick Scott. And his directives required felons to wait an additional five to seven years after completing parole and probation before they can apply to have their rights restored. Offenders must be crime-free during those years, and the application is tedious, the news reports. They must obtain certified copies of the charging document, judgment, and sentence for each of their felony convictions. And then after being submitted, the application takes several years, and offenders who have committed more serious crimes must travel in person to Tallahassee to have a hearing before the clemency board. And if they're rejected, the applicants must wait two years before they reapply. So, like, the process is wild uh, for felons in um, in Florida to potentially even get their, uh, get voting rights back at all. And this law would make it much easier. It would take all of these restrictions out of the way. That's the news. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People's coming. Here you are. BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue Panting, you're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now... Whew, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up. It can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot people. And now my conversation with Dr. Henry Lewis Gates. Dr. Henry Lewis Gates, thank you for joining us on Pod Save the People. Dr. DeRay, <laughs> I hear that you have an honorary degree. Congratulations, my brother. I do, I do. But I'm reminded that you were the first African-American to receive a PhD from the University of Cambridge in England when you went to Clare College there. And in many ways, you helped usher in African-American studies as a legitimate field of study in the academy, which cannot be understated. And today I'm excited to talk to you about 
the new season of Finding Your Roots, which you also host. Fabulous. I'm really excited about it. You know, Duray, each, each season I think, well, it can't get any better than this. And then we do the interviews uh, and the stories are even more amazing. It's, it's, um, it's astonishing to me. And one of the reasons is that more and more records have become digitized. The ways that we can analyze DNA are becoming more sophisticated and cheaper every year so that we can do things now that we couldn't do 12 years ago when I started and I only did African-Americans with the first two series that were called African-American Lives, um, one and two. And as you know, we started with Oprah and um, Chris Rock and Chris Tucker and Morgan Freeman and people like that. And then it just morphed. And DeRay, you'll love this. People say, well, how did you move from uh, just doing black people to expanding. And I got a letter one day, started getting fan mail, right? I got a, a letter from a lady who said that she was of Russian Jewish descent. And she said she'd always admired my stances on uh, multiculturalism, but she decided from watching African-American lives that I was a big fat racist because I only did black people. <laughs> 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 and I went, <laughs> she goes, what about me? What about people like me of Russian Jewish descent? And I went, oh my God, can I do white people, you know? <laughs> and then I thought, well, if we do white people, what about the other people in the world? What about Asians? You know, oh, what about Roman Catholics from England, from Ireland and Italy. What about Muslims? What about people from the subcontinent? What about people from India and, and Pakistan? What about Iranians with deep roots in Persia? So we just decided to blow it up, man, blow the model up and reinvent it. And uh, uh, we did a trial run called Faces of America, and which did very well. And from that, we morphed into a 10-week te- series called Finding Your Roots. And now we're in the fourth season. Now, why Ancestry? You've written a lot about the Black experience, the American experience. What made you want to do a show about ancestry at all? Well, my love of genealogy was really born on, I know the date, July the 3rd, 1960, because it's when we buried my grandfather, my father's father. And I was standing at his open casket holding my father's hand. Duray had never been that close to a corpse. And my grandfather looked like a white man when he was alive. So you, you and we used to call him Casper, but behind his back for Casper, the friendly ghost. <laughs> so you can imagine how white he looked dead, right? He looked like he'd been coated with alabaster and sprinkled with baby powder. And I'm standing there looking at this incredibly white person, wondering what is my relationship to him? How did someone with my phenotype Um, descend from a grandfather who looked like that. And how come he looked like that? Who was his daddy and and who was his granddaddy? So when we went back to the Gates family home in Cumberland, Maryland, my father took my brother, who's now Dr. Paul Gates, uh, the chief of dentistry at Bronx Lebanon Hospital, upstairs to his his parents' bedroom, my grandparents' bedroom. And they had a sun porch. And out on that sun porch was an an armoire, you know, a freestanding closet. And it was full of bank ledgers because my grandfather was a janitor at the First National Bank in Cumberland, Maryland. He was stealing these bank ledgers and he was using them as scrapbooks. And my father's looking furiously through one of these scrapbooks for something. And finally, he found what he was looking for. And, um, And he said, you boys bend over, look at this. It was the obituary, DeRay, dated January 6, 1888. 
of a woman named Jane Gates. Died this day in Cumberland, Maryland. Jane Gates, an estimable colored woman. That's what it said. Now, I was nine years old, brother. And then he pulled out this photograph. Now, I'm in my study at our home in Harvard Square, and I just turned around, and over the mantelpiece is that picture of Jane Gates, who was a slave and who died in 1888, and who was a midwife. And I'm looking at her right now, and she has her midwifery outfit on. And my father said, this is the oldest Gates we've ever been able to trace. I don't want you to forget, never forget her name, and never forget her face. And I looked at this odd-looking lady, and I went, holy mackerel. You know, and I, it was just overwhelming, first of all, to see my grandfather as a corpse, then to bury them, then come back, and then meet my great-great-grandmother virtually, right? So that night, when we went home, the last thing I did before I went to bed, I had a little, remember those Red Webster dictionaries that you had when you were a, a kid? Well, I haven't thought about those dictionaries in forever. I had one of those on the desk by my bed. And DeRay, the last thing I did before I went to bed was look up the word estimable because I didn't know what it meant. And I thought, wow, if this lady was estimable, maybe I'm estimable too. <laughs> and the next day, we went to the colored picnic, you know, the picnics were segregated and our neighborhood was segregated. And our little paper mill town, the school wasn't, the school integrated in 1955, a year after Brown v. Board, but the neighborhoods were. So we went to the colored picnic and on the way back, I asked my daddy to buy me a composition book. And without any prompting or anything that night, I interviewed my parents in front of our little 12 inch black and white TV about what only years later I would learn is called one's genealogy or one's family tree. I wanted to know how I was connected to this white looking black man whom we had just buried and who in the world this slave was. Um, so I've been hooked on genealogy ever since. Now I would lose this notebook. Um, and it was pretty skeletal, you know, I just I went back to my great, great grandfather and grandmother by name on my mother's side and to my great, great grandmother on my father's side, because all of Jane Gates's kids were fathered by an anonymous white man. She never told her kids who their father was. She only told them they all had the same father. So, um, and that was it. Well, in the year 2000, a black geneticist, Dr. Rick Kittles, wrote to me and said that there was this new technology that he, they can now do what Alex Haley did, but do it in a laboratory, do it in a test tube. And when I volunteer, I go, are you out of your mind? Of course. I mean, he had no idea that I had been interested in this since I was nine years old. And to make a long story short, he analyzed my DNA um, on my mother's side. And um, a few months later, I woke up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, to tell you the truth. I was standing there in the bathroom, and I got this idea that I could combine these twin passions, this, this love I'd had since I was nine to trace family tree with this new technology of ancestry tracing through genetics. And I could invent a whole new series and get eight prominent African-Americans and, and put it on PBS. And I had to go out and raise $6 million, which I was able to do, <laughs> thank God. And the result was African-American lives. And that was 12 years ago. And now we have 3 million viewers a week, 3 million viewers a week. Now you've been at this for a while. This is season four. I'd love to know, you know what you've gotten out of uh, hosting the show or what you want people to get out of 
experiencing the show as viewers? Like, what's your what's your hope there? Well, you know, when I began, I thought that the big emotional high point would be finding out, say, for a black person, where you were from in Africa, right? Like Alex Haley. The Kunta Kinte moment, I call it. But right when we were filming in the very first one, the person we were interviewing started to cry when they saw the names of their enslaved African-American ancestors. And I was the most shocked person on earth. I mean, I sat there looking at these tears fall, and I was saying, holy mackerel, you know, like I've... I've <laughs> As the joke says, I put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. You know, I didn't realize that the power was finding um, the names of your heretofore anonymous ancestors and finding stories about them. So all of a sudden, I realized that we would get some emotional response from the DNA analysis, but we would really get an emotional response from the reassembling their family tree, which we had done already. I just didn't know what the effect would be. I, th- I think that most the, the, of the people, first of all, we've never had a bad interview. Everyone's been deeply moved. Not everyone cries, but a lot of people do cry. You never know when. You never know over what. But I think that the popularity of genealogy today and of our series in part has to do with anxiety over the present. There's so much anxiety over the present and therefore the future um, that people want something to ground themselves through. Traditionally, it's been religion, and for a lot of people, it's been religion, and, that, and that's fine. But in addition, you want to know where you came from, on whose genetic or biological shoulders you stand. You know, where, where did all your, you know, you have 64 fourth grade grandparents, 32 third grade grandparents, uh, 16 second grade grandparents. Where did these people all come from? That's a lot of stories. It's a lot of ancestors. And we have an army, <laughs> you know, we had the research team that can track down just about anybody's ancestry. I mean, we've never struck out. I love it. And I thought at first, as I said, it never occurred to me that I would ever be um, telling Ted Danson about his 10th grade grandfather and his 10th grade grandfather. You remember in school when you studied the slave narratives, right? Well, one of the most famous authors of a slave narrative is Venture Smith. Venture Smith, Venture Smith, man, was owned by Ted Danson of Cheers, Ted Danson's ancestor. I mean, can you believe that? Wow. I mean, how, and Ann Hutchison, the, the famous um, feminist in the 17th century who insisted on the right that women could preach. Um, Ann Hutchinson is Ted Danson's 10th great-grandmother. And Ted Danson's fifth great grandfather, Oliver Smith, owned Venture Smith. He was a merchant born in Connecticut in 1739. And he was a patriot. So um, Ted could join the Sons of the American Revolution. And by the way, my fourth great grandfather was a free black man. I had no idea. He lived 18 miles from where I was born to Ray. And he fought in the American Revolution. And they found that out. Um, by, by analyzing my family tree, just like we did, um, like we do everyone else. So you never know what's back there. In fact, I'm descended from three sets of fourth great grandparents who were free before 1832, and each of the three sets lived in an 18 mile radius of Piedmont, West Virginia. And that was just sitting there all that time, and I had no 
idea. One of my closest friends is Jody Foster. She was my student at Yale. We're very, very good friends. And I, every year I would ask her, you know, you don't want to be a pain in the butt with your friends. So I said, Jody, let, let, let us do your ancestry. She said, no, 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 the personal reason. A couple of weeks ago, in out of the blue, she wrote me and said, I'm ready. So we go, wow. <laughs> Jody Foster said, we're going to do her family tree. Uh, Ava DuVernay's in this season. I admire her so much. Quest Love and Academy Award winner, the first black African to get the Academy Award, Lupita Nyong'o. We did her family tree, and it, it's amazing. Um, Questlove, are you ready for this? Questlove descended. Questlove's third-grade grandparents were named Charlie and Maggie Lewis. They were both born in Africa, DeRay, and they came on the last slave ship that came illegally to the United States. It was called the Clotilda, C-L-O-T-I-L-D-E, and it arrived illegally in Mobile Bay, Alabama, carrying 110 slaves from the port of Ouida, O-U-I-D-A-H, in the Kingdom of Dahomey, which is now, of course, the Republic of Benin. It is the last known slave ship to have arrived in the United States. And the people who called themselves after they were freed, Charlie and Maggie Lewis, were on board. And Questlove descends from, descends from them. He says, at the end of our shoot, he said, until an hour ago, I didn't know who I was. And now I do. That's amazing, man. We even have a photograph of Charlie Lewis that we shared with Questlove. Now, they lived in a, on the outskirts of, um, 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 of Mobile in a town called Africatown <laughs> because the people were mostly from this ship. And they were, of course, freed um, eventually. And uh, they formed their own little black town. <laughs> and there you go. So Questlove knows at least on that line, where his family was from, they were shipped out of Wida in, in Dahomey. Um, that's an amazing gift to be able to give, give to somebody. Larry David found out that his great-great-grandfather migrated from a Jewish community in Bavaria, also to Mobile, Alabama, sometime shortly before the Clotilda got here in the 1850s. When the Civil War broke out, he joined... He served in the Civil War in the militia, the Home Guards of Mobile, Alabama, obviously as a Confederate. Larry David had no idea he even had a Southern ancestor. And the brother owned slaves. In 1860, he owned two female slaves. And Larry said, you can see why my father didn't want to tell me anything about his people. You know, there are just secrets and lacunae, um, gaps, and people don't know. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. 
Now, what advice do you have for people who are interested in accessing their genealogy and their ancestry and don't have access to the resources of your show, but want to connect with the past that seems so inaccessible right now? You just type in the name of a grandparent and see what records are there. But for guidance, you need to go to one of the genealogical societies. You could just Google them. Here in Boston, it's the New England uh, Historic and Genealogical Society and the New York Genealogical Society in New York. That Many libraries have a genealogical person or a genealogical office, the National African American Museum certainly um, does in Washington. And the records are there. The records are digitized. And they're online. And you, you go and you access the records. Each of our guests is tested by three DNA companies. Um, so you can go to those popular DNA companies. The tests are $99 and often they're discounted. So you get it for $70 or $60, which is not very much. And you, they, you send an email. They send you a test tube in the mail. You spit in it. In six weeks, you get a little email connecting you to your website. And it'll tell you different things, where your mother's line comes from, your father's line if you're a man, just the mother's line if you're a woman. Um, but also your admixture, which is your percentage of European, Native American, uh, African, um, and Asian ancestry with a whole bunch of subdivisions. So now in one website, there's 60 subdivisions. You can see if you have any Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry, any Neanderthal ancestry, ancestry from the Iberian Peninsula, Northern Europe, you know, which one service will break down your African ancestry into a regional distribution. So you can see the percentage is sort of from Eastern Nigeria or Senegal. It's really interesting. And how have you grown since the series has started? I'm more aware experientially through the family trees of the hundreds of people we've traced of our common human identity. It's impossible to be a racist and pursue genealogy either, either through the paper trail or genetic genealogy. We're 99.99% identical in our genome. We all came from Africa, and I know that makes some people quite uncomfortable. But 50,000 years ago, everybody walking around was black. That's the way it is. And they all, our ancestors walked out of the um, Africa, East Africa, and migrated around the world. Um, and with all the variations that you know from evolutionary biology. So, you know, we have people with blind hair and blue eyes and really white skin and people who are dark, like from Sri Lanka or Southern India. And all those variations uh, evolved from common ancestors on the African continent. That's amazing. That's amazing. So we're all Africans. The only question is, if you're a recent African, like you and I are, <laughs> or if you're a distant African. The other thing is that the, 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 the will to survive the ray, the will to, people just got up. I mean, we were the enforced migrants, quote unquote. Our enslaved ancestors didn't have a choice. You know, they were thrown in the boats, enchained, and they ended up in the new world, and they had to survive. And we're descended from the determined people who hope against hope and through great, great faith believed in the future. I mean, think about it. Duray McKesson, Henry Louis Gates Jr. are descended from enslaved ancestors. And by the way, all the black people came here. I mean, well, let's say virtually to be scholarly accurate. Virtually all the black people who came here would have been 
you know, again, 99.9% would have come here as slaves, right? I mean, before recent immigrants. But the way our ancestors deferred gratification, found a way to um, worship God in a, in a new land, under a new name, within the framework of a new religion. And somehow, despite the severity of those conditions, rape, cajoled sexuality, brutal treatment, they built families, and they kept the faith, and somebody dreamed of one day a DeRay McKesson and a Henry Louis Gates Jr. would be having this kind of conversation, though they wouldn't have known specifically how to put that, that their descendants would be free and that they would you know, be citizens of this republic with all the rights thereof. Um, that's amazing. Deferred gratification, the blackest thing you could be was an educated person, a literate person. The blackest thing you could do was to defer gratification because we had to protect the future, our progeny. That's a value that all black people today in this country need to be reminded of over and over again. But our experience was extreme, but the experience of our Jewish brothers and sisters was extreme as well, being, you know, killed in pogroms and systematically brutalized uh, and vilified Christ killing Jews. The expression was, you know, it's horrible, horrible stigma that um, was visited on the Jewish people. I tell students in the course I team teach with my next door neighbor, Larry Bobo, uh, introduction to Afro M, which kids call blackness 101. <laughs> I tell them if you rip up the floorboards of Western culture, there are a few streams that are continuously running it. One is anti-black racism. One is anti-Semitism. One, of course, is homophobia. One would be sexism. But never forget that anti-black racism and anti-Semitism are closely related, which is why the Civil Rights Coalition, the coalition that put together the NAACP was blacks and Jews. Um, the Neo-Abolitionist Coalition, as it were. And uh, we should never forget that our common, our common interests in the, the, the areas of overlap in our common past are the common oppression that our ancestors had visited upon them. <laughs> I'm still waiting for my invitation. All right. We will do it. I promise. Last question. What is a piece of advice that has stayed with you over the years? Oh, when I left to go to Yale, uh, oh, man, I was sad. I was scared. My parents bought me a new car to Ray. So I could be amongst them, as my mother said. And I drove up all by myself. My parents didn't even see the Yale campus till my graduation. I got in that car. It was all loaded up. I was terrified. You know, I'd been pretty smart in the Piedmont school system, right? I was valedictorian, et cetera, et cetera. And I tested well on standardized tests. But to go to Yale, I thought, man, all these, and we had women. I, I, when I went to Yale in 69, they had just let women in, too. It was the first large class of black people. Large, I put in quotes. And I went, oh my God, you know, they're like Albert and Alberta Einstein up there. You know, I don't know if I can, how smart I am. Um, guess I'm going to find out. And my daddy looked at me and he knew I was scared and I was sad and my mother was crying and I had tears in my eyes. I said, oh my God, you know, this is awful. And my daddy said, boy, I just remember one thing. They don't treat you right, you come on home. And you know what, DeRay? That freed me, man. Uh, like, you can always go home. 
you know, you can always go home. Um, and you need to know where home is, which is why finding your ancestors is so important because they ground you. They show you where, where home is and it's a home. It's not a physical place necessarily. It's a metaphysical place. It's a psychological place. It, it grounds you. So if you're being attacked, if you're suffering racism, if you're scared, we all get scared. If you're frightened, you know, you got to remember where home is. And uh, that's a place that you can always find comfort and solace. And that's the best advice I ever got. Well, Dr. Gates, thank you so much for joining us today on Party of the People. Consider your friend of the pod and can't wait to talk to you again soon. And I hope that everybody checks out season four of Finding Your Roots. Uh, starts on Tuesday, eight o'clock, um, October 2nd, and it's on every Tuesday for 10 weeks. Finding Your Roots on your local PBS show. Be there, be square. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. Here you are, BPMs high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night. No matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great. And now, my conversation with Sean Sherman. Sean Sherman, thank you so much for joining me today on Pate of the People. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm excited to talk to you today because we're going to talk about a topic that I know virtually nothing about, and that is indigenous pre-colonial <laughs> food. Uh, you lead a business called The Sous Chef. Um, and I want to talk, right. tell me sort of how you got led to be in this line of work, what your background is, and let's start from there. All right. So um, first off, I grew up on Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. So um, both my parents and myself are enrolled in the Oglala Lakota Sioux Tribe. So um, just to give context of how many tribes there are around today, I think it's actually 567 in the U.S. and 633 in Canada, just to kind of give context of like how many tribes are still out there today. Right before high school, I started working in restaurants at the age of 13, and um, all through high school and college, um, working restaurants. And then after college, I moved to Minneapolis from the Black Hills area of South Dakota and kept working restaurants and moved my way up to a chef uh, position within just a few short years. Um, so I had a pretty good chef career here in Minneapolis, worked for a lot of um, kind of local farm-to-table type restaurants early on when that was still kind of a new concept even. What is pre-colonial food? Like, why does that matter as a as like an area of focus in your work and in general? Partway into my chef career, I kind of had, re- had an epiphany moment of uh, just realizing that there was no representation of indigenous foods 
um, around me. You know, I could go around, uh, I can go around the city and I could find food from all over the world and just nothing that was representative of, uh, you know, the, the landscape and the people that were here before. And it kind of shot me on a path to really try to understand it because I had spent so much time researching other cultures through culinary, you know, everything from Japanese to Spanish and other European, um, and just really, you know, digging in deep into uh, other people's cultures. And I realized I just didn't have a lot of knowledge of my own. So I had to start uh, kind of researching and I kind of had a vision of all the pieces that I needed to kind of start to put back together to kind of understand, you know, what makes up an indigenous food system. So the first question I asked myself is just, um, what were my Lakota ancestors really eating before, you know, they were influenced by any other cultures um, and what kind of foods were there and what kind of wild plants were they using? And, you know, I just really wanted to start figuring it out from there. If you just think about history, you know, even the like the um, Louisiana Purchase doesn't even happen until around 1800. So a huge chunk of North America was still, you know, largely indigenous based. Um, and it's kind of silly to think that it's, uh, Native American culture and history is treated like ancient history when it's, you know, so fresh and so recent. Um, and it's just I feel like it's important for anybody just to have a deeper understanding of um, culture and life in these lands before Europeans showed up. And there's so many lessons to learn, especially with the food systems of what people were gathering that grows naturally around us, um, what kind of agriculture was happening, and really digging into a lot of the pieces to understand the food here. And there's, you know, people were living extremely sustainably. And permaculture was a large part of a way of life. And just having a really broad knowledge of plant life and animal life um, around us that basically provided everything, food and medicine and crafting and lodging and all sorts of stuff. So there's just a lot of awesome knowledge to pull out of that. And for us to look at it through a culinary context and to realize like how much more food and flavor um, defines all of our diverse regions throughout North America, we just see this immense amount of diversity across the board. So instead of just... Uh, you know, if you know, if you drove across the states today, you're just going to see the same food chains and the same hamburgers and you know similar craft beers and soda and stuff like that. But if we had indigenous restaurants across the board representing each unique region, we would see that patchwork of diversity that we have, um, where every few hundred miles it completely changes with food and flavor and religion and mythology and stories and the whole works. Is this about health? Is this about culture too? Is it about politics? Like, what is this for you? It's a little bit of everything because um, food is kind of the center of so many points. So for me, growing up on Pine Ridge, um, Pine Ridge Reservation happens to be the poorest area in the U.S. pretty much since inception. So, you know, there's mass amounts of type 2 diabetes, obesity, heart disease. The, you know, median for a male of an average age to live to is, you know, in the, in the low 50s, I believe. You know, um, upwards to 90% unemployment rates, you know, so it's a really not pretty picture. Um, and the health problem is really generated because people are removed from their traditional foods because before the um, indigenous communities were put on more of a government um, subsidized food system, their traditional foods kept them really healthy and they didn't see things like type 2 diabetes um, and there wasn't, there's was very little obesity um, and just a lot of those uh, health problems that are a source of poor food access or, and, and poor food in general just weren't there. So for us, it's really trying to 
um, helped bring health back into a lot of indigenous cultures, especially, and also helped um, bring uh, cultural preservation into the picture by regaining a lot of knowledges from the past and, um, you know, pulling them into the future. So the younger generations are going to really understand what their traditional foods are and why it's important to carry that information on. And one of the things that I read in, in researching you is the, the importance of the oral tradition in uh, the continuation of recipes. What did you find in your research or in your development of the cookbook that you're about to release? Sure. So, you know, there was such shattered information out there. So, like I said, I couldn't just go out and buy a Joy of Native American Cooking Cookbook to, you know, just to research that. I had to really dig into histor- historical and ethnobotanical and archaeological, talking to elders, and really just trying to understand indigenous food systems as a whole. And for me, it really helped by looking at a broad spectrum of looking at many tribes and not just Lakota, but, you know, tribes all across North America, which is where our main focus is today, just to see not only diversity, but also commonalities within um, food preservation, cooking techniques, plant usage, um, medicinal usage of plants. And, for, and, you know, there was just so much more to look at in that context. Got it. And are there any recipes that, that we can make? that like average yeah, people can make? Yeah, it's just really simple. It's just super simple foods because it's just, uh, you know, with the cookbook, there's over 100 recipes of indigenous-based um, foods where we tried to remove other cultures' influences so there's no um, processed wheat or dairy or processed sugar or beef or pork or chicken and just really trying to give people a sense um, of rethinking about, you know, this really important food system that's been here because it's really the backbone of, of the Americas, you know, to understand the indigenous histories because all of American history um, begins with indigenous histories. So we just, and so really it's just looking at these very simple ways of um, producing foods um, and making recipes out of just a few ingredients. So for us, it's as simple as some squash and some maple and some sunflower oil or something, you know, really simple like that. Or making uh, cookies with just sunflower and, again, maple or honey to sweeten it, but using just two ingredients to, you know, make doughs and and pieces like that. So people can um, really simply process a lot of these foods, and they just happen to carry a lot of health. And if they're doing it for their particular region, then it's really speaking about um, that particular region, too. And I think anybody would benefit um, not only from the health aspect, but just having a deeper sense of um, the history of food and agriculture and wild foods in the regions that they grew up in. And where can people go to learn more about your work and about the upcoming restaurant, about the cookbook? So um, our website at uh, www.sue-chef.com, and it's S-I-O-U-X-chef.com, is uh, one place where they could start just to see um, videos that we've done and pictures of the food and uh, links to the cookbook that comes out October 10th. People can find out about us um, and all the projects that we have, like the catering operations here in the cities, um, links to the cookbook, um, reviews, um, things like that. Um, we're, we've also just uh, released our nonprofit called Natifs, N-A-T-I-F-S, dot org, and it stands for North American Traditional Indigenous Food System. And that's the biggest project that we're working on right now because our vision is to help build indigenous food-based businesses um, slowly across the nation and eventually throughout North America. Through the nonprofit Native.org, what our vision is, is that we um, are actively working on opening up um, an indigenous food hub here in Minnesota right now in Minneapolis area. 
in the city um, where we are going to house a restaurant that's going to be an all-Indigenous-based restaurant for this region, um, a training center to teach about the Indigenous food system curriculum that we've been developing over the past few years, um, everything from Native agriculture to wild foods to food preservation, cooking techniques, um, historical references, salt, fat, sugar production, things like that. Um, and we also have a research and development team starting here called Indigenous Food Lab that's going to allow us to further our own research just to become better educators. And then um, we will be branching out directly into the tribal areas around us um, and helping those tribes to open up um, their own Indigenous food businesses. That way we'll utilize our training facilities to help people not only learn about foods and cooking, but also just how to run these food businesses so it can be really impactful. So the nonprofit is really focused on education and creating food access out there across the nation just to get healthy foods out into those areas that really need it, that suffer from a lot of those um, issues of just having no healthy food access. And, um, you know, that's, that's kind of our big plan is to try to be influential. And we eventually hope to open up other indigenous food hubs around other large cities across the nation so we can hit any big city like Portland, Seattle, Phoenix, Denver, Boston, like you name it, because there's nothing out there right now, and then satellite around to their tribal communities to help them develop and kind of create this unique web of um, uh, super diverse food businesses slowly all across the nation and eventually reach into Canada and Mexico. Got it. And in this moment, there are people who are losing hope, who are worried, who are frustrated, by the chaos that's happening at the national level and in the local level in some places, what do you say to those people? You know, we just the best we can do is just to keep on working um, to better ourselves for the future. I mean, that's the best work that we can do. So for us, we're just trying to set the ground or the framework for the next generations. Um, and we're just going to keep moving forward with doing positive work that's going to be impactful for future generations um, and really addressing a lot of the issues that we've had in the past and even today and trying to at least do something about it. So the best thing we can do is something, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and is there a piece of advice that has stuck with you over the years? Um, you know, I was just down in Albuquerque and uh, we were at a conference and somebody told me, um, you should really, I said, we as Indigenous people should be the answers to our ancestors' prayers. And I liked that saying because it kind of stuck with me. And again, it's kind of just about doing something that's going to be positive and impactful for the future generations. Um, and I think that's where we are. And we have an awesome growing team. Um, me and my business partner, Dana Thompson, have been on this um, since the start, since uh, 2014. And we've been able to grow into a small team of 12 people. And we've been able to really carry people pretty far with that. And we're really excited just to grow, continue to grow more and to bring more um, passionate people on board with us um, so we can all make a change together. Well, thank you so much for joining today on Pod Save the People. And uh, we consider you a friend of the pod and can't wait to see you again. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks so much for joining today on Pod Save the People. Make sure that you share with a friend and make sure that you give it five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. 
On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. For over 130 years, McCormick has helped you make mom's lasagna to keep her secret recipe alive. Take over taco night, no matter how chaotic your day is. Conquer the bake sale, even if you get to it last minute. And craft the perfect Sunday brunch when it's not even Sunday. Because with McCormick by your side, it's going to be great.